All right, if you'll find John chapter number 8 this morning, John chapter number 8, we're going to pick up in our story of the woman taken in adultery. And while you're turning there, of course, remember uh, that this woman was brought uh, to the uh, temple where Jesus is teaching. And so this is happening in public view. Uh, There is an audience who is seeing uh, these things take place. And so Jesus, as he's teaching uh, this multitude of people in the temple, we remember that the scribes and the Pharisees bring a woman uh, to Jesus, and they have a great intent on the purposes of why they're bringing her here. Uh, Remember, this is more than just a story about uh, a woman taken in this sin. Uh, We've got to remember that this also shows us the condition of Israel and its blindness. And so the Holy Spirit is drawing our attention uh, to the blindness of the Pharisee and to the reality of who Jesus Christ is. Uh, last week, we, we dealt with the realities of uh, Jesus sitting down and teaching them. And as he's doing so, uh, we're not told exactly what he was teaching them. But the scribes and the Pharisees came in and they brought this woman. Now remember, they had tried to arrest Christ in chapter number 7. They tried to take him by force. They were unable to do so. So they had devised another plan. Uh, We're going to try to trap him. We're going to try to trick him, uh, and maybe uh, we'll be able to to take him this way. So remember, there's always been uh, this idea that they were going to try to take Jesus, and this, they thought, was the perfect plan. And as we look at this today, I think you'll see that in the human perspective, uh, this seems like they had him. This seems like maybe they have given Jesus a a question that he will not be able to answer. Uh, So we're not going to cover the first uh, four verses. We'll pick up where we left off in, in verse number five. It says, Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, He lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where, art, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. If you mark in your Bibles, you may mark the question that the Pharisees and the scribe ask in verse number five. It seems like a simple question, but it's simply, What sayest thou? What sayest thou? They are desiring to get a response from Christ. Their response is uh, based upon they want him to uh, entrap himself. Uh, They want to put a question before the Lord in which he cannot give a proper answer. In other words, to their mind, there was no answer that he could give that would get this situation to where uh, it would be understood. 
But notice what they do. They come in and they use the law. And this is key to what we're going to look at this morning. They announce to the Lord that Moses says in his law, or the law commanded us, that such should be stoned. In other words, they bring this woman who's been taken in a very act of adultery, and the problem that they're going to present Christ with is they are going to try to defy the wisdom of God. And this woman who's been taken in a very act of adultery, it is true that the law required her to be stoned. So what they're asking and telling the Lord is exactly according to the letter of the law. Uh, let's look at this this morning so we understand that we're not just uh, saying that. Go to the book of Leviticus first. Go to Leviticus chapter number 20 and look at verse number 10. And let's just look at a part of the law that they were claiming. And so we can see that uh, what they're saying is 100% accurate. Now remember, last week we introduced this section by asking the question or making the statement, is there harmony to be found between mercy and justice? So we need to keep that in mind because we're going to see that very clearly uh, she had violated the law and the penalty was very clearly given in the law. Leviticus 20, verse number 10, the Bible says, And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Now, the death penalty, so to speak, was a given in this particular act to protect what would be referred to as the sanctity of marriage. It was considered uh, a, a heinous sin. So the, the idea that this uh, woman was being brought in before Jesus, she had violated the law, that's not even disputable. Now, I'll go over to Deuteronomy 22 and then look at verse 22. We'll see this from a different perspective. Deuteronomy 22, 22. And this is partly where we'll see that there's a, uh, there's a problem in their accusation. Uh, Deuteronomy 22, 22. If a man be found lying with a woman married to a husband, then they shall both of them die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman, so shalt thou put away evil from Israel. So we've established this reality. This woman, uh, there's no doubt she was taken she was caught in the very act of adultery. So they bring the law before the Lord, and they, they, by saying she broke the law, what do you say to this, Lord? What sayest thou? Now, think about this question for a moment. Have you ever been asked a question that when you're being asked it, you know someone is trying to uh, incite a response? Uh, I've been asked questions before in theological realms where the person was asking me a question not because they really wanted the answer, they wanted to incite a conflict. That's what this question is. Uh, this question is being asked not to get Jesus' real perspective on this. It's being asked because they want to incite him. They want to entrap him. Again, they're trying to defy the very wisdom of God. Had Jesus said, let her go, they could accuse him of being an enemy to the law of God. So let's say as they bring, they bring this woman in, if Jesus' response is, well, just let her go. The Pharisees in their mind would have the ability to accuse him of violating the law. 
but they would also be able to use his own words against him. Jesus had said in Matthew 5.17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So had Jesus just simply ignored her sin and said, let her go, they would have looked at him and said, listen, you're going against your own words. You're violating the very thing in which you claim to have come for. Now let's look at the other side. What if Jesus had said, well, then stone her? Okay, that's the other question. There's only, there appears to only be two responses. Either A, you've got to let her go, or B, you've got to carry out and stone her. So what if Jesus had said that? Well, then they would have used Jesus' own words against him when Jesus claimed to be the friend of publicans and sinners. So here's an example where these Pharisees thought, we've got Jesus cornered. If he ignores the charge that they brought against this woman, they could accuse him of being a compromiser. They could accuse him of not being serious with sin. On the other hand, if he said, I'm going to pass sentence on her and she needs to be stoned, that would go against the very reason why he came. John 3.16, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but, or John 3.17, condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So again, the intention is to try to convince Jesus to say or do something that would appear to violate one of these two perspectives. So here's the dilemma. If God dismissed her sin and says, I don't need to hold her accountable for this, then he's completely ignoring the holiness and the righteousness of God. But if he condemns her, if he says she ought to be condemned, is he really come to seek and to save that which was lost? Luke 19.10. This is what we would refer to as a satanic subtlety. In other words, this is something that these Pharisees had nothing more intended except to try to trip up God himself. If we can defy him, now again, they don't believe he's God. They don't believe he's the Messiah. They basically are putting the question before him. Can there be harmony between mercy and justice? In other words, how can God not be a compromiser with sin, and yet justice be done? How can mercy be displayed without the law being violated? So the law of Moses commanded that both the adulterer and the adulteress were to be killed. Now, some people have taken the approach on this text that have simply simplified this by saying, where's the man? Where's the man that she was caught with? Why didn't they bring him there? That's a relevant question. But Jesus doesn't make any mention of this. He doesn't mention, hey, if you're going to accuse her, go get the guy too. The the idea that, hey, make this fair, both ought to be there because the law says they both ought to be there. Jesus says nothing about that. He doesn't say, hey, where's where's the other offender? So we have this, what appears to be a dilemma. I would tell you this, that there is no dilemmas with God. Uh, This is not a question where uh, we're going to read into the Scripture and say Jesus is, and again, I'm not being disrespectful, Jesus is scratching his head and saying, boy, uh, you really got a good point here. All we're told is that verse 6 says, this they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. They wanted to test him. They wanted ammunition. They wanted to be able to catch him in his own words 
and either A, ignoring the law, or being something that he said he was not. Now, let's think about this. If we're to look at this picture and just say, all right, this is just a local problem. This is just a problem for the day and age in which they live. It's only a problem in that area. This is probably, if not the most profound question that could ever be placed before Christ and before God. How can there be harmony between mercy and justice? If, if the law is to be satisfied, how can there be mercy? And can mercy ignore the law? And the answer is no, it can't. They have to be in harmony. God's mercy and God's justice work together. They have to be together. They can't be pulled apart. So human reason says by these Pharisees, he's got to choose a side. He either has to let her go or he's got to have her stoned. That's what human reason says. They say, when we look to God, we say God has to respond in human reasoning. This appears to be a moral human dilemma which man could never, ever figure out. How can they be harmonized? The law of righteousness, again, the law of righteousness demands punishment. We know God demands punishment for sin. He cannot compromise with sin. To set aside the demand of punishment would introduce something that is contrary to who God is. So if God is holy, God is righteous, and God hates sin, he cannot allow any sin to enter into his presence, what hope does this woman have? Again, this woman, you'll find out, nowhere says, Lord, I was not guilty of the crime which they brought me in on. She never stands up and defends herself and says, I'm being falsely accused. As a matter of fact, if you were to read the text, she says nothing. The only words she actually says to the Lord is when he asks her the question, who hath condemned thee? And she, her only words in this whole interaction are no man, Lord. That's all she ever says. So it's not that this woman's saying, I disagree with the charges. She's all but acknowledging that she's guilty of these sins. However, what's Jesus going to do? Her only hope, her only hope in this situation was in the mercy that was extended by Christ. Mercy is always an act of grace. How can you exercise mercy when justice is in the way? How can God give mercy if justice is there? That's the question. How can grace come without violating the righteousness of God? How does God, knowing we're sinners, how does he extend mercy without violating the law? That's the question. Because we're guilty of it. Just like the woman, we're guilty of the sins which God accuses us of. Now, it may not be this sin, but you and I are guilty of sin. So in order for you and I today to just look at this and say, boy, this is a story about a woman taking an adultery. No, this is every sinner who's ever lived. Because the accusation is thrown at us. The devil throws accusations like this. And he says, Lord, what are you going to do with this person? Because if you let him go, then you are compromising with sin. However, if you condemn them to death, 
then you're not who you said you were because you've come to seek and to save that which was lost. This is a dilemma. Human wisdom will never find an answer to this question. You'll never find it. It's evident that these scribes, these Pharisees, they didn't want an answer. They didn't want an acknowledgement, but yet what Jesus does speaks volumes. And that's what we're going to see here in just a minute. God found a way in which guilty sinners can be restored without the law being violated. That's harmony between mercy and justice. How does God save a guilty sinner without violating the law? That's what's happening to this woman. We need to look at a couple elements of this problem. First of all, who's in the narrative here? We have the person of Jesus Christ. The person of Jesus Christ. You say, wouldn't it be simple to say God? No, it's important to say the person of Jesus Christ. Why does that matter? Because Jesus Christ coming in human flesh, taking on the robe of human flesh, was the requirement. Okay? Christ, the, the idea of redemption and salvation could not have been accomplished from Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He had to come. He had to take on this robe of human flesh. So what we have here is the person of Jesus Christ. Still God, but we have the person. It was Jesus Christ, the person who came to seek and to save that which was lost. It was Jesus Christ who went to the cross. So there's one party. The second party we have is the sinner. And not just a, a, an accused sinner, a guilty sinner. Her sin is announced. The woman taken in adultery. That means they saw it. They witnessed it. There was, no, there was no question as to whether or not she was guilty. She had no means to clear herself. In other words, she could not say they're wrong. What they saw wasn't really happening. She had no means to clear herself. She's got one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's being asked to pass judgment on her. Three, of course, we have the Pharisees and the scribes. The Pharisees, of course, were big believers in the keeping of the law. So they would announce to her, we might think of them as the prosecutor. They are announcing the charges against her. They're announcing what law she broke. And they declared what the penalty should be. It's like going to a courtroom and saying, this is what this person did. Here's what law they violated, and here's what we think should happen to them. According to the law, this woman should be put to death. So you have three parties. You have the Lord, you have the sinner, and you have the accuser. Okay? You have every element of that in every human being. We all have an accuser. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He is the one to this day who is trying to undo your salvation. If he could do it, he would do it. He's trying to accuse you of what you've already clearly guilty of. You know what the amazing thing is? Is when the devil and his angels work and you get accused of something by him, he's always right. You're actually guilty of the sin he's reminding you of. Like a sin that you committed in the past comes to your mind and you say, you know what, I can't argue with that, I did it. 
Your conscience reminds you of your sin. Your conscience brings it up. I, I, I find myself, and it's a horrible feeling when something you thought you would put away and a sin you already know you're forgiven of comes back up into your memory and you remember it as if it happened yesterday. It's clear as, it's clear as a bell. And you said, why am I thinking about that? It's what sin does. It's an accusation being made. It's as if, wait a minute, you broke the law. You deserve punishment. Yet Jesus Christ has not condemned me. I broke the law. I am guilty of it. So notice now, this sinner, this woman, is brought before Christ alone. Christ is the only judge here in the room. Jesus himself would later be brought before his enemies. He would be indicted on false charges. And yet he'd be condemned to die. In the human wisdom, there is no harmony. Please don't miss this. There is no harmony between mercy and justice. If you were... Someone in, in your family was, had a crime committed against them and the person who was accused. There's really only one or two, there's only two options in how that story is going to go. Either that person is getting jail time or something worse or they're getting let go. There's no answer that's going to come out of that where you're going to say, okay, wow, mercy and justice, harmony there. Because if it was your loved one who had the crime committed against them, you better believe you're not going to say, I'm okay with letting them go. So you've got this problem here, but this is not a human problem. This is not a problem that's going to be solved just by thinking this through and thinking a system of deduction. This is the problem that's presented to Christ. Is grace helpless before the law? It's another question. Is grace helpless before the law? If grace is not helpless, in other words, if grace is not negated by the law, then where is the solution? How is Jesus going to deal with this? Again, how can these two things be harmonized? Well, let's look real carefully at what Jesus, how he responds. They said this tempting him that they might have to accuse him, but Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. This is the first thing that he does. He doesn't speak. He doesn't open his mouth. He doesn't even, we're not even told he glances in their way. It says he stoops down and he, with his finger, he writes on the ground. Now again, to blow by this and to say that there is no significance to this is to ignore the context of what's going on. This action is not insignificant. There's a couple things that are significant about this. You say, well, we don't know what he wrote. We don't know anything about it, so let's just move on. However, if you interpret the Bible, especially times when the Lord writes with his finger, it, refer, it refers us to times when God was writing about the law. As a matter of fact, one of the evidences or one of the occurrences where we see this is in Exodus chapter 31, verse number 18. Genesis 31, 18. So as, as Jesus is riding in the ground, okay, people have gotten so caught up with 
what word did he say? What did he spell? And if you're really Americanized, you actually say what English phrase did he write? Well, he didn't write in English because he didn't speak in English. So Exodus 31, verse number 18, we read this. And he gave unto Moses, when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai, two tables of testimony, tables of stone, written with the finger of God. Now this was the giving of the law. People often say, how did God give the law? Did he speak it? No, it was written by the finger of God. Those tablets were written by the finger of God. So when we think about this, the significance of Jesus stooping down into the ground and writing, we're going to see in just a moment, the Pharisees don't make the connection right away. But look what it says. Two tables of stone, two tables of testimony written with the finger of God. When the Lord wrote on the ground, those, tab those tables of stone... They were taken literally from the ground. When Jesus wrote in there the law, Jesus is, is sending a message to them that you are speaking, are you reminding me of the law? Jesus symbolically, and we're going to see this in a minute, is showing that he as God was the finger of God that wrote that law. This was not, a, this was not insignificant. This was not him just doodling in the ground. I've heard messages that have gone so far off the rails where saying Jesus was just drawling. He wasn't really saying anything. No, when you interpret, the, let the Bible interpret itself. There's significance to the finger of God. Because when the finger of God is mentioned, it's mentioned in two ways. The giving of the law or an announcement of judgment. Which is really quite remarkable when we get into the story even further. So Christ showed these Pharisees. Remember, Jesus had shown them, I didn't come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill the law. His writing on the ground was confirming to them that there is a righteous law. But these Pharisees are so blind to what he's doing, they didn't see any significance. And how do we know they didn't see any significance? Because verse 7 says, so when they continued asking him, they continued the question. He lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. So Christ here is not demanding sinless perfection of anybody. But what he is doing here is he is saying, if there's any of you who could enforce, who have the right or the ability to enforce judicial punishment on criminals... Do any of you have the right to do that? And the answer, of course, is going to be no. But they continued asking him. So it's evident that the Lord, they didn't, they didn't understand what he was saying. They might have said something like, well, we've got him. He's, he's silent. He's not saying anything. But yet he stands up and he asks the question. They didn't grasp how significant this was. But it also reminds us of the account of a man by the name of Belshazzar in the book of Daniel. 
And if you remember that story, I want you to go to the book of Daniel. And we're not going to read this whole account because it would, it would take quite a while. But in the, in the book of Daniel, chapter number 5, if you find that for me, and then I want you to, want you to look at this with me. Daniel chapter number 5, in verse number, in verse, uh, let's read, just read a couple of these verses here. Daniel chapter 5, verse 1, Belshazzar the king made a great feast to the thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels, which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem. And the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote... Then the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote one against another. This guy saw the hand on the wall and his knees are knocking. There's, that's a simple way to put it. Scared to death. Okay? And you would be too, by the way. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. And the king spake and said to the wise men of Babylon, Whosoever shall read this writing and show me the interpretation thereof shall be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Long story short, Belshazzar is so scared by what he sees. He says, bring in all of the astrologers, bring in all the people, the soothsayers, bring in all the false people. And if they can tell me what this writing on the wall means, then I will make them a ruler in the kingdom. Third in command. Then came in all the king's wise men, but they could not read the writing nor make known to the king the interpretation thereof. Then was King Belshazzar greatly troubled and his countenance was changed in him and his lords were astonished. Now the queen, by reason of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet house and the queen spake and said, O king, live forever. Let not thy thoughts trouble thee, nor let thy countenance be changed. Now verses 11 down through 16, there is an interaction saying, is there anybody who can interpret this? And they bring up the name Daniel. And they say Daniel is able to interpret that. And verse 13 says Daniel was brought in before the king. Uh, he's mentioned in verse 12 as having an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding, interpreting of dreams, showing of hard sentences. So here's Daniel, a man of God, now standing before Belshazzar, this wicked king, and Daniel is going to tell him what the meaning of the writing on the wall is. Verse 17, Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let thy gifts be to thyself and give thy rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing unto the king and make known to him the interpretation. O thou king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father a kingdom and a majesty and glory and honor. And for the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him, whom he would he slew, and whom he would he kept alive, and whom he would he set up, and whom he would he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. It goes on and says that this man, his, his, he was driven to the sons of man. They fed him with grass is what it says. Verse 22, and thou his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart, 
though thou knewest all this. Now Daniel begins to implicate Belshazzar. And he's telling him the interpretation of the writing on the wall that were written by the finger of God. But has lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before thee, and thou and thy lords, thy wives and concubines, have drunk wine in them, and thou hast praised the gods of silver and of gold, of brass, iron, wood, and stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know, and the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways has not glorified. Then was the part of the hand sent from him, and this writing was written. And this is the writing that was written. Mene, mene, teko, apartion. This is the interpretation of the thing. Mene, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tekel, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Peres, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then commanded Belshazzar, and they clothed Daniel with scarlet and put a chain of gold about his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. In that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain. When God, with his own finger, wrote on the wall, it was a judgment. Now, when Jesus wrote in the wall, when he wrote in the ground... He was writing, now don't miss this, as the lawgiver and the one with the ability to judge. Plain and simple. Jesus was sending a message. These Pharisees knew the stories. They knew how the tablets were written by the finger of God. They knew the story of Daniel. When Jesus wrote in the ground without saying anything until he said, you who without sin cast the first stone, look what happens. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, begin at the eldest, even unto the last. What's happening here? What Jesus wrote and by the question that he asked he was, deten- he was telling them that he was the only one who had the ability to maintain the law and to pass judgment on her. You say, how do you know that? Because when he did that and he asked about the first stone, they all walked away. They left him. None of them were left standing there. This had a far deeper meaning than what we simply look at. Christ was declaring that God's law was this holy and righteous law. Here we find the lawgiver himself shining the light on he who had the right to give the law and he who had the right to enforce the law. Folks, by the way, go back to our own walk with God in our own situation. If anything else other than God being the lawgiver and the one who's able to do with the law as he chooses does not step in and declare you without sin or free, you have no ability to go. Satan as the accuser can only accuse you, but he cannot pass final judgment on you. These Pharisees did not have the ability nor the right to pass final judgment. Now remember, they wanted one of the two answers. You're either going to let her go or you're going to stone her. And if you do either one of those, you cease to be God. Yet Jesus, in the way only he could do, he writes with a finger in the ground, I am the lawgiver and I am the one who is the ultimate judge. It's an amazing thing because every one of them walked away after he asked that question and wrote in the ground. Christ was declaring to these accusers 
They were not fit to demand the enforcement of what the law required. Nobody but a perfectly holy and righteous hand could administer a perfect law. Humanly speaking, we say that still, but she broke it. Didn't she deserve to die? Yes. Didn't you deserve to die? Yes. Do you deserve mercy? No. But if the ultimate lawgiver and the ultimate judge says, I'm extending mercy, does that violate the law? Absolutely not. Why? Because Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law. He was the perfect fulfillment of it. In Christ, the law has been obeyed. That's why salvation is not of us. It is all of God because the satisfaction is in Christ, who is, by the way, the lawgiver and the perfect fulfillment and the satisfaction of the demands of the law. In principle, we can see very carefully that all adversaries of the cross and adversaries of God are being reprimanded. You think about this for a moment. Satan could stand before the highest of God's angels and can insist and say, here's what I think you ought to do, and yet his words will not be heeded. The Bible in the Old Testament book of Zechariah, chapter number 3, is fascinating. Zechariah 3, it says this, And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. Now get the picture here. You've got Joshua, the high priest, standing before an angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you know this story? How many of you know this account? Zechariah is one of the most ignored books in all the Bible. Most people, this will be the first time many have ever even heard this. We've heard all kinds of accounts. Here's Joshua with the devil standing right next to him, standing before the angel of the Lord. Now watch this. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused... Watch this. I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. Folks, this is a perfect picture of the devil standing as the accuser before the angel of the Lord and before that Satan never says anything. The Lord says, I'm rebuking you, Satan. The Bible makes it very clear to take the time to say, Joshua is standing in filthy garments. Now, I don't know about you, but if I compare my life to Joshua, there's no comparison. If, if Joshua was standing in filthy garments with all the appears God did through him, my garments must be just as filthy. And yet he says, I will cause, no, he didn't say I will cause, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. And I said, let them set up a fair miter upon his head. So they set a fair miter upon his head and clothed him with garments and the angel of the Lord stood by. And the angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house, and shalt also keep my courts, and I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, 
thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. The branch, of course, is a reference to literally the Messiah, Christ himself. Remember, we've talked about that. It's a messianic title, meaning a sprout or an offshoot. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall ye call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. The essential, the essential point of this, this chapter, Joshua, as the high priest, is in view both in his person and in his office as the representative of man before God. That's what this text is about. He stands before God filthy and defenseless. But God, in his grace, removes the filthy garments and replaces them with righteous garments. It pictures the forgiveness of sins. This is the, the very details of the elements of our justification. What are those elements? Well, first of all, there's got to be a need. That means we're guilty. There has to be an act that's a pardon or the provision of righteousness. And there has to be a ground in which forgiveness is given. The coming work of the branch, the Messiah. There's a demand, godliness. It must be and can only be removed by one and one only. Jesus Christ was declaring himself to be the only one worthy and able to judge. That's why he asked the question, who among you is without sin? Cast the first stone. We used the illustration last week. If we were to bring somebody in here who was guilty of a crime we all knew, a sin we all knew, none of us, none of us have a right to throw the first stone. Now, we may feel empowered to do so. We may feel like, well, they did wrong. The only one, and we could stand here, we could say, we demand justice. You know what human demands are for justice are? Human demands for justice are to ignore the mercy of God. Because if we demanded God be perfectly just with us without mercy, then every one of us is cast out into outer darkness for all of eternity, never, ever, ever to spend any part of eternity with Christ. See, we want justice for other people who sin, but we don't, we don't stop long enough to look at our own and say, listen, if God, if there's not harmony between justice and mercy, then we're all condemned. This is not just a picture about a woman and her sin. This goes so much deeper than that. The Pharisees were being rebuked by Christ, just like the angel of the Lord was rebuking Satan in Zechariah. As he stooped down again in verse number 8, there's an emphasis on the word again. It's hinted at by the word again. The Lord wrote on the ground a second time. And what did he write? What did he speak? The Old Testament scriptures had to have been what he was writing. The first tables of stone, you'll remember, what happened to those? They were dashed to the ground by Moses. They were broken. The first tablets, were the tables of stone were broken. But a second set was written by God. You can study this for yourself. Where it happened to the second table of stone, where did they go? This is amazing to me. Does anybody know where they went? They went into the ark, the ark of the covenant. The ark of the covenant was a picture and a perfect representation of the presence 
of God. As a matter of fact, it's in Exodus chapter number 40, verse 20, that gives us this insight here. Again, so you can see I'm not making this up. Exodus 40, verse, uh, what did I say? Exodus 40, verse 20. This is the second set. And he took, well, let's go back and read a little bit here. Um, this is the, the tabernacle. He says in verse 18, And Moses reared up the tabernacle and fastened his sockets and set up the boards thereof and put in the bars thereof and reared up his pillars. And he spread abroad the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent above upon it as the Lord commanded Moses. And he took and put the testimony into the ark and set the staves on the ark and put the mercy seat above upon the ark. And brought, he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the covering and covered the ark of the testimony as the Lord commanded Moses. Notice again, verse 20 says, and put the mercy seat above upon the ark. What's inside the ark were the, tables, the tables of stone. What is setting above the tables of stone is the mercy seat. What was applied to the mercy seat was the blood. The blood was applied, and that's what, that is what pronounced atonement. Jesus Christ was the picture of the covenant. Jesus Christ is the picture of the mercy seat, and it is placed above what those tablets said. And you better believe today, we better be thankful as believers today, that his mercy is above what's written on those tablets. Because if his mercy is not greater than the tablets... And if Jesus himself cannot forgive even the breaker of the law, and if there's no harmony between mercy and justice, we are people without any hope today. You see, this is not just about Jesus doodling in the ground. This is not about Jesus just simply saying, look, I'm going to choose to do what I want to do. What he was writing, he was writing with significance. Those tables of stone inside of that ark, they were covered by the blood-sprinkled mercy seat. Christ was giving more than a hint, hint of how he would save. You see, we look at this and we think these Pharisees wouldn't have had any idea of what he was doing. However, I would tell you, and we'll see this next week, being convicted by their own conscience tells us really all we need to know. We'll look more in depth at how they went out one by one because it matters. And we'll find that now Jesus is left standing alone with just this woman. He's going to give her those words, go and sin no more. But I want you to think today, I want you to think about what Jesus was doing. He wasn't saying, I'm going to set aside the law. By what he does with this woman, he wasn't saying the law is not important. But what he was saying when he stooped down that very first time and with his finger he wrote in the ground, he was writing that the law is established. The law is what it is. But as he stooped down the second time, they understood twice. They understood two tables of stone. That second time he realized at the second table of stone there was a requirement of blood. And that blood was the, what was shed on the mercy seat. That's what was spread abroad on that. The mercy seat, the blood that was shed by an, an innocent animal, became a substitute. Jesus himself gave these Pharisees and these Jews every reason to believe he was exactly who he said he was. And when we look at this account between this, these Pharisees and, and this woman, Jesus is appealing, and we'll see this, appealing to their conscience. 
being convicted. Appealing to the conscience ensures that punishment would be given with justice in mind. But remember, they were trying to trap him. They didn't want an answer. They didn't really want to know what it was, but the, the fact that they walk out one by one from the oldest to the youngest is not insignificant either. We'll look at that next week as well. But what I want us to finish with today and think about the reality here is Jesus being asked that question. What do you say? And if you and I were to be brought, just as these Pharisees brought this woman, and we were brought before the Lord Jesus Christ and all of the crimes and all the sin we're guilty of, we know we're guilty of, and the Pharisees were to ask the question of Jesus, what do you say to this man? What do you say to this woman? What do you say to this young man, this young woman? How Jesus responds to this is not just for her. This is the very mercy and grace that's been extended to us. Because none of us can say, well, I'm not guilty, so there's nothing he can say. All we can do is stand as guilty sinners, knowing we deserve condemnation, knowing we deserve the full wrath of God. Yet Jesus is going to use those exact words saying, who's left to condemn you? And he's going to leave them with the phrase, if they don't condemn you, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. Folks, when we begin to understand what really this is happening here, we understand that we are looking at the harmony of mercy and justice. Human wisdom will never give you an answer as to why you're on your way to heaven. Because if you were had hold it in hand by just what human wisdom says, there'd be no salvation. Because we should all pay for the penalty because we're all guilty. And in no court in America, if you committed a crime against someone else, this person, would anybody say, I think they ought to be let go. Even though they broke the, broke the law, they ought to be let go. No, they would all be screaming, that person deserves to be condemned. And every one of us deserves to be condemned. And yet Jesus in mercy says, I am the fulfillment of the law and I'm not even going to condemn you because I have paid the penalty even for the law. Go and sin no more. We'll look at that, that very statement next week. That'll be the title of the message next week. Go and sin no more.